today on Tea and Teaching. In Scotland, there, there has, there's a lack of specificity and that's where all of the problems come from. So to go back to the question, what makes a good curriculum, I think it is one that is very, very clear in its expectation about what should be taught. I'm going to jump to these content cues that I was referring to. Um, and I'll just share some of these. These are these are um, the broad thematic steers that, that I suggest would be a good starting point for conversations. These, these are a bit more specific than the what can't you leave our subject without learning about or how to do? I mean, that, that's a useful question to ask, but these are a bit more specific. So um, the building blocks that students will need if they decide to specialise in this subject in future. The big concepts and ideas in subjects where this is applicable. The major works of major people in subjects where this is applicable. The knowledge students are likely to need to understand, appreciate and look after the world around them and beyond. So Teaching Strikes Back talks about the very thing you've just talked about, Mike. Um, it talks about the importance of a rationale, a vision, if you like. Um, the school needs to have that, the vision for their curriculum. What, what, what is the purpose of the curriculum? A rationale is what you might call it. And then each subject team needs their own. The book talks about different layers of the curriculum because often when you speak to a head teacher, say, and you say curriculum, they think timetable, particularly in a secondary school. But the book argues that there are really four levels of the curriculum that we need to consider. Welcome to Tea and Teaching, the educational podcast you can listen to with a cup of tea. I'm Mike Harrowell, and Arthur Moore is not with me. I'm joking, he's here. Hello, Arthur. I was nervous there, Mike, and I know that I'm here. Great job in the intro. Didn't mess it up like last time, so well done. I've been really working hard at it. Um, I nearly got carried away my excitement because we've got a returning guest today. There's not many, there's not many. Yet. There's not many yet. So we are joined by Bruce Robertson, uh, uh, author of The Teaching Delusion, one, two, and three. Uh, And we're going to be speaking about curriculum, whole school curriculum, department curriculum, um, how we design it, how we evaluate it everything curriculum-based. So go and grab that cup of tea and join us to talk to Bruce. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. We are joined by Bruce Robertson. Bruce, welcome back to the pod. Great to be back. Thanks very much for having me back on. There's, there's not many people who are willing to come back for a second episode. So thank you for being one of those people. I'm in the elite. <laughs> you are. You are in the elite. Starting out strong, Bruce. I like that. I'm in the elite. Setting the expectation high. So we thought, uh, Bruce, tonight would be quite fun to speak to you about curriculum. Um, obviously, it's an area that everyone has a level of involvement with, whether that's as a school leader, a middle leader, as a teacher. Um, that curriculum is, is so, so important. So I'm going to open up with a big, broad question for you. Uh, what does a good curriculum look like? So I think to answer that question, uh, you need to flip it. I think you need to consider what a poor curriculum looks like. Um, At the risk of being controversial, I will say that you don't have to look too far 
um, the curriculum that we currently have in Scotland, in my opinion, and I'll be clear, this is my opinion, um, is not a particularly great curriculum. Um, it's been going for 13 years now, Curriculum for Excellence, it's called. But there are so many problems with this curriculum. Um, and I think when you speak to, to parents and when you speak to teachers, um, there, 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 are, there is a significant number of parents and teachers who are very, very critical of the curriculum that we have in Scotland. Um, in my second book, um, The Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back, it kicks off with an exploration of the curriculum. Part one of that book is all about the curriculum. Um, and the second chapter has a specific focus on the Scottish curriculum. Um, the problem with the Scottish curriculum is that really it's too vague in its expectation. Um, it doesn't specify content really in any meaningful way. Um, it talks about experiences and outcomes, but by experiences, it doesn't even really mean that. It actually means a particular type of pedagogy. It means student-led learning. Um, it means research. It means inquiry. Most of the curricular statements start off with things like, by researching this, by working in groups, uh, that, that, sort of, that sort of thing. And then it will outline something really broad, like a historical period. Um, and then it will give you an outcome. Hence why it's called experiences and outcomes. And it will say, I can, I can evaluate this or I can draw conclusions from that. But there's no real specificity there. There isn't specific knowledge. There isn't specific skills. And there aren't actually specific experiences. Um, you know, to me, a specific experience in science, for example, is participating in or watching this particular uh, experiment. Or in English, it might be reading this particular text. Um, in Scotland, there, there has, there's a lack of specificity, and that's where all of the problems come from. So to go back to the question, what makes a good curriculum? I think it is one that is very, very clear in its expectation about what should be taught. Now, some people will hear that and think, but that's limiting. You know, that, that's, that's putting constraints on learning, and that's absolutely not what we want to do. I think a great curriculum is one that specifies very clearly in meticulous detail a core. This is for everyone, regardless of which teacher you have in this particular school, regardless of the school that you're going to. Um, you are all going to get the opportunity to learn about this and how to do this specified in that level of detail. And then there should be room within that for teachers to go beyond that core, areas that they might be interested in, for students to get to make choices and be able to go beyond that core. You, you need that space for sure. But if that's all that you have, um, free choice for teachers and for students, well then what you end up getting um, are, are wildly different curricula in different schools. And then it's not a giant leap to realize that that means there'll be quite a variation in quality. And that's a problem that leads to inequality. It's the thing about always taking, you take context into your decision-making process. But right. if you start with your context and you have nothing to kind of build the context around, what you end up doing is just staying within your context and talking 
in a very narrow focus to in your school situation, isn't it? So you need that kind of, this is where the curriculum is, now add the context to it, not the other way around. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. That that is what I'm saying. And um, in one of the chapters in that first part of the book, um, it's trying to provide a steer to schools, but actually I would suggest wider than that to to the governing bodies um, about how you go about making decisions about what's included in the curriculum. So it talks about five C's. Um, The fourth one is collaboration. So teachers working together and parents having some input there and students having some input there. That's what it means by collaboration. And the fifth one is change. You know, the, the curriculum should change over time, but that can go hand in hand, should go hand in hand with specificity. We should have something clearly mapped out. And then over time, through collaboration, we'll have change. Yeah, and I guess the the original uh, rationale for bringing the national curriculum in the 1980s was to standardise the content that was being delivered. So in your experience, at what point have we moved away from that content-driven curriculum to the, the kind of the skills and the outcome based curriculum? Well, it's a very different situation in Scotland as it is in England, um, because education is a, it's a devolved matter. So in Scotland, when did we move away from that level of specificity? And some would argue prescription, and therefore they would start to spin that as being a negative thing. Well, really with the, the introduction of curriculum for excellence, Um, So in Scotland, you can go back about 13 years to about 2010, but it had been in development for for many years before that. But that's when that's when that implementation came. I don't want to get political. I don't want to (laughs) suggest for a second that in Scotland we deliberately do things that are different to England. I'm not going to go down that route. That is an outrageous. I cannot believe. Quote him on that, people. We, we have a, a big drive in, in England to, to talk about how ambitious our curriculum is for our learners. So making sure that when we're looking at our curriculum, that what we want them to achieve is as ambitious as possible. And then, um, you know, it's up to that individual teacher then to scaffold back. As a school leader, how would you ensure that the curriculum across the school is as ambitious as possible for, for all the students? Well, you have to know what's being taught, first of all. Um, And I talk about that in in Teaching Strikes Back. Um, If you're going to have a coherent, challenging curriculum, and if you're going to be able to make links um, beyond particular subjects across the school, maybe with your partner primary schools that, that, that feed into your school, if you're going to make those sorts of links, then you absolutely need to know what is being taught. What my school, Berwickshire High School, has done is actually what I think was the original vision for Curriculum for Excellence in Scotland. We've unpacked the experiences and outcomes, those broad statements, into specific content. Um, A content-rich curriculum is what I call it in the Teaching Delusion 2. A content-rich curriculum is one which is knowledge-based and skills-orientated. So we need to clearly map out the specific knowledge and skills that we want our students to learn while they're in our school. And to consider big questions like, well, you cannot leave our subject or our school 
without having learned about X, Y, Z. I think that's the sort of conversation that you want to get into. I think about my own school experience. And um, for example, I didn't learn anything at all in school about the Second World War. And I think that's a big gap. I think that's absolutely something that should be taught to students in school. Now, some people who argue against a specified curriculum will say, well, whose knowledge is that? So we could get into a debate about whether or not the Second World War is something that every student should learn in school. But that debate is healthy. And that's what I'm talking about when I say collaboration. And there will be change as well. But to, having a, to have an imperfect knowledge-based curriculum, a content-rich curriculum, to have an imperfect one, that's immensely better than having a curriculum that does not specify knowledge and does not specify skills. Because then you just get that inequity that I was talking about. Some students who go to some schools do get to learn about these things and do get to learn how to do these things. And other students who go to other schools, they don't. And I it's think the that's classic, a It's the classic of letting um, perfect be the enemy of progress, isn't it? Or perfect be the yeah, enemy yeah, of good. Exactly. Yeah. And we focus so much on this kind of perfect curriculum that we kind of forget about the progress. It's weird for me. It's like a maths teacher to hear this because this is a conversation we don't often have in, in maths classrooms. Like I would never go like, oh, should we teach Pythagoras? Oh, I don't feel right. like that's right for our students. It's just not conversations we have. And I was just interested in this. that's about the links, I think, isn't it? It's about certain subjects that are vertical in nature or more vertical and some that are horizontal. I talk about that in the book as well. Something like maths and science where concepts actually have to build on concepts. You must have learned about this before you can learn about this. Whereas in subjects that are more horizontal, um, like English, when the range of text that you could choose is effectively infinite. Uh, in history, when the range of historical periods that you could choose is, is so vast. And that's where decision making becomes much more important. Where does PE come into that, Mike? It's PE. Well, this is a, an interesting topic, and I'm glad you brought up history there, Bruce, because there are so many topics in history you could select, and it's the same in PE. Obviously, our national curriculum in the UK, in a, sorry, in England, dictates that we we teach certain categories of activities, but it very much is up to the school in terms of what specific activity. So I could. I could do a curriculum with absolutely no football or rugby in it whatsoever and still meet the demands of the national curriculum. And somebody else down the road could do a similar curriculum with and you know, leave out another two sports. So how do you decide what is included in your curriculum and what is excluded? Because we cannot teach every single event that's happened in history or every single period of history. So how do we decide what the most important ones are and where students are going to benefit most from those. So chapter four of Teaching Strikes Back is all about that. Just Let's leave it there. It. People just go and buy the book. Read yeah, it. yeah, just go and read it. Yeah, end <laughs> of interview. It's called um, What to Include. And it starts off by considering um, the themes of useful and interesting. And that chapter ends up concluding that useful isn't particularly useful in itself as a steer to guide what should be in the curriculum. Because um, if you take maths, for example, um, learning about fractions, likely to be useful. Learning about the area of the circle, less likely. Um, I, I hardly ever have to 
to use a formula to calculate the area or the circumference of a circle. So if you think that's not particularly useful, let's dump it. Then in science, um, learning about black holes, useful? Not really. So dump it. All, all kinds of things start getting thrown out of the curriculum if you think that useful is the way to go. Interesting, um, I think, is that is more useful as a, as a guide. Um, and that's where the decision making should be devolved largely to your subject specialists, to your teachers and to the, the team leaders. And it's absolutely, absolutely, it should not be coming from one person, say the head teacher. Um, the head teacher should know what is being taught in their school and they should provide stimulus for debate. Um, but it's, it's those teachers and subject teams who should be making the decisions. And one final plug, it won't be, for Teaching Strikes Back is that it talks about various content cues. So it gives some suggestions um, about thematic steers that, that subjects can consider um, regarding what they should be including in their in their curriculum. Can I ask here, gents, as someone who's really only been in conversations about mass curriculum, I've never been in those uh, high up important meetings with your expressos uh, in your big business boardrooms, talking about these big ideas as Mike likes to likes to be in these meetings. As someone who's been in those meetings, both of you, I was wondering, the questions we're kind of talking about now, are these the questions being asked when you kind of come back to curriculum? Or is there so much going on at a kind of lower level that it's really hard for school to kind of take a step back and think about the school's curriculum rather than right, right, we've got an issue with our English curriculum, got an English problem with our maths curriculum. How often how often and how hard is it as a school to take that step back and have that kind of broad holistic approach? I'll go. Um the silence. What an excellent question it must have been. The school and therefore the senior leadership team within the school have to create the conditions for that. They they have to to make the time for that through through meeting patterns, for example, um, for how inset day time is used. They need to make the time and they need to be giving the steer. They need to give the push. So that content-rich curriculum that I'm talking about, the Berkshire High has developed, um, that's come about because that has been pushed and time has been given um, in order to do that. Um, what the school needs to do now is, is to to do what I'm saying and, and create that time to go back and revisit and, and debate. Um, there is so much that you can be focusing on in a school. Um, it's probably quite surprising to many people who don't work in a school, how little time is spent in so many schools, um, not focusing on the content of the curriculum. Mike, does that align with your um, kind of experience? Yeah, I mean, Bruce will have far more experience than me with this. I'm um, merely a an observer in a lot of these meetings but for me it's looking at each individual subject and, and saying what are you teaching when and why um and once school leaders start having those conversations and you know bruce said it earlier auditing what is in your curriculum across this thing because a head teacher a deputy head teacher cannot cannot know what is being taught in every single subject in every single term you know, they need those middle leaders, those heads of faculty and department to be telling them what they're delivering and why. 
um, and why they've made those curriculum decisions. And I think that dialogue between senior leaders and middle leaders is so, so important. And to have, like you said there, Bruce, to have curriculum at the forefront of your agenda and to actually have it as a, a regular conversation point, not just when we're looking at our options in year nine, not just when someone's come in and said that curriculum is not good, so let's tear it all up and start again. It's that regular conversation of how often are you reviewing your curriculum? How do you know that's suitable for purpose? Okay, has there been a change somewhere? Do we need to adjust it to react to that change? So I think it's it's that dialogue between senior and middle leaders. That's the key for me. Agreed, absolutely. It probably took Berwickshire High School about 18 months to build its own content-rich curriculum. That was taking those experiences and outcomes and unpacking them. Um, we gave a lot of time to teams to do that. But now we've got something. And it is imperfect, but then it always will be. Um, there are other things that we do need to focus on. Um, professional development around pedagogy. Um, that, that requires a lot of time and space. Um, but but by the same token, we do need to make the time to keep coming back to the curriculum and the content of. That's a fantastic point for us to take a, a little biscuit break there, Bruce, but you've teed me up for the first question when we come back, because it's a question I've been absolutely dying to ask you. So listeners, have a little break. We'll see you in a, little, a short while. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. We're still here with Bruce. Um, and Bruce, you've teed me up for the next question. I'm going to give you... Teed me up is an... Well done, by the way. Teed me up. That's brilliant. Teaching. I can hear the applause in the country right now. That is sensational. We're on fire tonight. Sorry, I broke the, broke the phone. That was brilliant. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Bruce. You've got a choice uh, as a teacher to go and work in a school. One has an amazing curriculum, but it has very poor pedagogy. It's the curriculum's delivered in a poor manner. The other one has fantastic pedagogy, but a very weak curriculum. Uh, you can't adjust either, but you've got to work in one of them. What are you going to go for? What school do you think is going to be most effective? That's a great question. Thank you. Shall I, I, I tell you what, I'll give you a little think time. Arthur, what would you go for? And then we'll we'll check with Bruce to see if you're correct or not. I like how you've given Bruce the thinking time, but no, throw it, Arthur. So do I want to teach bad? Do I want to be in school that teaches bad stuff good? or good stuff badly that's that's in layman's terms yes i enjoy teaching well and i think i would struggle to be in a school where i knew really good stuff wasn't being delivered well that would really frustrate me because no one's getting anything out of that at least if we're teaching bad things bad things whatever like in a in a good way our students are developing the learning skills and processes that then they are maybe better informed to go off when they leave our bad school to go and do better things so i think i'd rather be in a, a school that was delivering stuff really well and no one was engaging with what was being delivered maybe i think that's a good point dylan william in his book, Embedded Formative Assessment, says that pedagogy trumps curriculum, which is maybe just another way of making that point. That um, <laughs> much more succinctly, I must, I must say. 
bad stuff. I will say that where there's where there's a weak curriculum, if you take Scotland, let's go back there, and if the curriculum that exists for your school is simply the experiences and outcomes, as it is for many, many schools, what you end up with are teachers week by week unsure about what they're going to be teaching the next week. And it puts a huge workload pressure on them. Um, so they end up stressing out when it comes to Friday afternoon. Um, what am I teaching next week? And then again over the weekend. And then they just grab something. And I mean no disrespect to teachers when I say that. It's not their fault. The curriculum isn't clear enough. Um, teachers cannot do everything. So they can't be... They can't constantly be expected to be designing the curriculum. And that's not what we've been saying in our previous conversation. We said that you need to get it to a particular point and then you need to make some space to keep coming back to it. But you can't constantly be thinking about the what. You need that time to think about the how. We, we know that, that there's, there's so much that comes from any one lesson through the formative assessment that you've been using in that lesson that you then have to respond to in your lesson planning for the next time. The, the curriculum should be there for that so that you can focus on your pedagogy. So that's kind of like the warm-up curriculum. Then you could have one, a curriculum that's more clearly mapped out, like I've been arguing for, but you maybe don't, you're maybe not a huge fan of the content. You would prefer it if the content were x as opposed to y but that school has got really good systems and support for professional learning a real focus on pedagogy i would i would want to work in that school so it's got an imperfect curriculum as far as my own views about what should be taught are and it's got that healthy focus on teacher professional development i'd want to work in that school um but if you went Back to my first example, the one where the curriculum is just so weak that it ends up causing me so much work. Well, I wouldn't be picking that. Can we ask you the question, Mike? Yeah, I agree with what Bruce just said. <laughs> no, definitely. I think I think if you've got a lot of teachers who are very skilled in their pedagogy, I think that is. A curriculum is difficult to fix, but a lot easier to fix than having a school of bad pedagogy and have a culture of, of poor pedagogy. For me, I, I think that's that's more workable as a school leader than having to go back to drawing board in terms of pedagogy. Well, I think this takes us into a conversation that we've all been in in department meetings as heads of departments, second departments, teachers, whatever. Why are we teaching this? We've we've all we've either been that person or we've heard that person in the meeting or know that person who was going, oh, why are we teaching this? We don't need to teach this. Um, and that kind of brings us on to what we wanted to talk about, Mike, is like if we go into a department view about curriculum, it's it's a very different conversation to how it is on a school because we start getting into kind of the specifics. So, Bruce, if, like if we're talking about curriculum from a department perspective, what should like a HOD what should the department do in kind of reviewing their own curriculum to see if it's delivering what they want it to be delivering to their students? I'm going to jump to these content cues that I was referring to. Um, and I'll just share some of these. These are, these are um, 
the broad thematic steers that, that I suggest would be a good starting point for conversations. These these are a bit more specific than the what can't you leave our subject without learning about or how to do? I mean, that, that's a useful question to ask, but these are a bit more specific. So um, the building blocks that students will need if they decide to specialize in this subject in future. The big concepts and ideas in subjects where this is applicable. The major works of major people in subjects where this is applicable. The knowledge students are likely to need to understand, appreciate, and look after the world around them and beyond. The knowledge students are likely to need to understand, appreciate, and look after themselves and others. Key dates and timelines, key vocabulary, including the etymology of words, knowledge and experience, knowledge and experiences that subject teachers believe themselves are interesting. It's a steer. It's, it's a spark, a stimulus for debate. You know, what are those building blocks, for example, at the beginning, the, the, the big concepts and ideas? Well, that's for subject specialists to, to thrash out. Um, but I think there has to be some sort of prompt like those, um, like those offer content cues. Absolutely, because I know from a, a P perspective, you know, there might be teachers out there who think it's really important to teach you know, the skills that you can learn through a sport like rugby. You know, it's the only sport we teach where there is student on student contact. You know, and there, there's certain skills developed through that. There are other teachers in PE who would say, absolutely not. We shouldn't be teaching that. There's, if you want to learn that, go and join a rugby club. You'll learn those skills there. So having that as a, a prompt for a conversation about what are we teaching and why? Why do you believe that we should be teaching that? That's, I agree with you, that's the absolute basis of, of where we start looking at our curriculum, what's important to include in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's useful. And I think you're touching there on, on the difference between specificity within a school and then specificity nationally. And if you pushed me on that, then I think that it's more important for the reasons that have just been exemplified there, that you have that specificity within the school. So if you come to our school, you're absolutely going to learn about this and how to do this, regardless of which teacher you have. That I think is more important than the, the, the specified common national curriculum. Um, yeah. I think it's like, again, for maths, I've got a very kind of, narrow focus on this because there's stuff you you have to teach i can't i can't get away without teaching certain things whereas that's not true for subjects like p is it mike where you can kind of you said jump around and you spoke about this before mike of you'd like a p curriculum that is focused on skills so this term we're going to do passing and you use the sports to develop those skills rather than saying right we're just going to do football and just kind of hope we get some stuff out of that yeah, I've got a big bee in my bonnet about this because for 16 years I've been teaching PE and I've seen it in so many schools where we teach the sport. What sport are we teaching? And we don't focus on we're teaching the child. Yeah. So we, we deliver the, the topic as opposed to delivering the skills that the student needs. So it's the same in history. Now I can I you can teach me about World War II, but I can teach you about facts about a historical period but can i teach you the skills you need to analyze the sources effectively and decide what is reliable and what is not so 
I guess that comes, I guess it comes down to kind of a, a knowledge curriculum and a skills curriculum and, and where do you find the balance between the two? So what I talk about in this book, Teaching Strikes Back, is the fact that it's not, it's not a choice between knowledge and skills. The curriculum that we need is knowledge-based and skills-orientated. So there are different types of knowledge, the, the two main categories being declarative knowledge, knowledge of facts and concepts, and procedural knowledge, knowledge of how to do things. And in the sort of curriculum that I'm arguing for, you can map out both. The, the skill of passing, that is a specific skill in, say, football. And when people talk about skills, they're, they're either talking about those sorts of specific skills, how to pass in football, um, or how to calculate the, the area of a triangle in maths. But sometimes they talk about transferable skills, as the, the label is often put on it, um, problem solving, critical thinking, creativity. But what I argue in this book, and many others have argued as well, is these terms are not particularly helpful. They are umbrella terms for subsets of skills that are much more specific. And there's a consistency in literature, in, in cognitive science in particular, that, that any skill is domain specific. There is a transferability to some skills. So for example, if we were thinking about designing a PowerPoint presentation, once, once that's been taught, you should be able to transfer that skills between different subjects. The skill in itself is still specific. The skill was to design something specific in that PowerPoint presentation. You can then just use it in different subjects. The skill of passing a football is specific to football and will have some transferability um, to some other sports, I am sure. The skill of analyzing a particular text to summarize the main idea, say, well, there's something in that that can be taught relatively quickly. But again, as I argue in the book and others have argued before me, the ability to summarize a piece of text, say, is much more dependent on your understanding of that text than it is on the skill of summarizing. So you can teach that summarizing skill pretty quickly. And yes, there is an element of transferability between subjects. But what is much, much more important is that students have been taught the knowledge that they need to understand the text and then to summarize. I remember there was a bit in maths, a phase where like, oh, get kids to do Sudokus because it's got numbers in or make them really good at maths. You can do loads and loads and Sudokus. It just makes you very good at doing Sudokus. It doesn't really help you like with your knowledge of anything else. And that's, that's a much more finite example of what you're saying, Bruce. Like you can get very, very good at something, but if it hasn't got that transferability, like you, that's when you need to kind of go back and review. Mike, what most I want to ask you... don't have the transferability that most people would like to believe that they do. Exactly. We, we think we've learned something in one context, so therefore we can do it in all contexts. And it's just right. that's not how it works. Yeah. And that's something we just don't really understand kind of as a society, more than a profession as a society, we don't get. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you were to ask businesses um, what the curricula in school should be focusing on, they would be using the terms that I just used. They'd be talking about problem solving, creativity, critical thinking, as if these things can be taught as a thing but they can't. Well, otherwise we would just have a subject called problem solving and we'd have a subject called creativity and some everything would be sorted. Route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you do have some, some schools have gone down that route, uh, you know, creativity periods. I've, t I've taught in a school where the, a subject was called problem solving. Um, right. 
I then I had to deliver it at points. It's incredibly hard to plan <laughs> a curriculum based on problem solving. Very there's hard. a good example of the sort of school that you don't want to work in if we're thinking about pedagogy versus curriculum. There's a there's a red flag. Kids got very good at Sudoku, so it uh, was a right. time well used. Um, Mike, you've you've been in schools and departments where the curriculum is is changing. So we've had all these big conversations and we're kind of changing those curriculum. How do you? And I'll go to Mike first because otherwise Mike will throw it in and just say I agree with Bruce. How do you get people to buy into that, Mike? You're an expert to getting people to buy into your fantastic ideas. How do you do it? Um, I think you've overegged that slightly. Um, I think it's about shared ownership for me. So, as a head of department, I would I would want to involve the whole of my team in first of all identifying what is the intent of our curriculum. So what are we trying to achieve with our curriculum? Because if we don't know our why, we can't know our what and we can't know our how. So the first conversation is about having that shared vision. So once you've got that shared vision and everyone's understanding where you're going, not everyone's going to agree. And you can put 10 different people in a room and ask them to design a curriculum and they'll all come up with something slightly different. But once you've got that shared agreement of what you all feel it should do, you can then start processing that. And I was actually going to take that one step on because my next question to Bruce was what should the process of curriculum review for a department look like? Because I've seen it done in many different ways. I've seen it done where you're the head of the department, you've got that vision, you go and implement a curriculum. And that's normally done where a department's maybe been traditionally quite weak. Sometimes that's kind of a top-down review of it. I've seen it done where it's a very democratic process and Everyone has an input into it. I've seen it done where students have an input into it. So I wonder how how useful a student input is. But have you seen a, a good model of completing a curriculum review from a department perspective? And if so, what did that look like, Bruce? So Teaching Strikes Back talks about the very thing you've just talked about, Mike. Um, it talks about the importance of a rationale, a vision, if you like. Um, the school needs to have that, the vision for their curriculum. What, what, what is the purpose of the curriculum? A rationale is what you might call it. And then each subject team needs their own. The book talks about different layers of the curriculum, because often when you speak to a head teacher, say, and you say curriculum, they think timetable, particularly in a secondary school. But the book argues that there are really four levels of the curriculum that we need to consider. Um, the macro, the meso, the micro, and the nano. So the macro curriculum is the subjects and the time that is given to those subjects. And that is within a, a head teacher and a senior leadership team's gift. It's probably not within the gift of the, the team themselves. Um, the meso level is about the topics and the subtopics that are taught. Now that's up for discussion and that's up for debate. And that goes back to the, the points that we were talking about earlier, those content cues. Say. Then the micro level, well, that is getting into the level of um, specific knowledge mapped out, written down, specific skills mapped out and written down, specific experiences that you will get to take part in this experiment or you will get to go on a trip to see this play. The nano curriculum is down to the level of what many people call it, the knowledge organizer. 
and it's just it's just become even more meticulous in its detail for for what is going to be learned. But I find that that those levels of organization are very very helpful. And for subjects, then it's the three uh, meso and micro and nano. What I offer in the book um, are some examples of what your curriculum maps might look like. I call them programs of teaching and learning. And I give an example for sciences and I give an example for music. Um, and, I, and I argue, as others have as well, that it's a mistake to think that these sorts of models work for some subjects and not for others that some subjects are knowledge-based and some subjects are skills-based. I don't think that's true at all. All subjects are knowledge-based. Some have more of a focus on declarative knowledge. Some have more of a focus on procedural knowledge, like PE. But all subjects are knowledge-based and skills-orientated. And so this model, um, that, that works for all of the subjects. But how do you make the decisions? Well, probably it goes back to things like those those content cues that we were talking about before. What I'm hearing from both of you there is, and please correct me when I'm wrong, is it's about giving people autonomy, but in their kind of area of expertise. So there's no, you don't want to be given a, a teacher in your department autonomy over the whole curriculum, how they deliver it. But you might want to give them autonomy in how they are delivering it in their classroom, in their context, we could say. We don't want heads of department to be talking, you don't want to give heads to complete autonomy about what they're teaching it, when they're teaching it, because it needs to fit into your school curriculum. So it's about that aut autonomy coming down, but, but understand your autonomy is within your kind of zone of influence. Mike, you're ready to jump in. It's freedom within a structure, isn't it? Yeah. And the curriculum is our structure and our freedom is the pedagogy we have within our classroom, the methods of delivery we choose as a teacher. And that's why it's so important to differentiate between the two, because we know people who use curriculum pedagogy, that they just use those terms interchangeably and they, they are different. And we need, we really need to acknowledge that and be very, yeah. very clear about where people can go and express themselves. We've had pods before, Mike, where we talk about the art of teaching. But there is the art to teaching within kind of your zone of influence. But we don't want to kind of everyone rocking up on a Monday morning and having pure autonomy over everything they do all day because, well, that might be fun. Yeah, definitely. There's a balance to be struck. Um, and to go back to the point, I agree with what Mike said, by the way. Um, to go back to the point about students and how much input they have. Well, they should have some input but probably not as much as some would, would push for because you don't know what you don't know. It's the subject experts um, who should be the key stakeholders. And there should be a role to get the voice of the senior leadership team, parents, students, there should be a role. Um, I give an example in the book about a student who claimed that they'd left school and never been taught anything about racism at all, the whole, the whole time they were at school. Now that may or may not be true, um, but if it's not mapped out in the curriculum, well, then that's a problem because it's difficult then to argue against that. And if that was true and the student didn't have the opportunity to feed that in in some way, well, that's a problem as well. So there do need to be forums for students to be able to, to input and, and call out where they maybe see some gaps. They should certainly be listened to. 
I'm just thinking of all oh, this. So you, look, you look deep in thought. Well, I was thinking of if I went into my maths class, in, into a maths classroom and said, what do we want to do? And I, what you don't know what you don't know is they, I'd get very good feedback on what they feel they need to develop further on where that, where their confidence levels are low. And I think that's where kind of the feedback loop comes into, and we can go off into whole things about how you get that feedback, but acknowledging students, it's a curriculum where you are delivering things to them. So they naturally have a role in it. Um, right. But that role is not deciding maybe, maybe not those big high questions as bad as you said Mike like they have that role but in their kind of structure but you need to have a structure for it you can't just ignore ignore them because they're part of the curriculum surely as as the end receivers of the content maybe in your self-evaluation calendar for the year you have some student focus groups or some surveys so at, at particular points you know maybe a couple of times in the year uh, and one of the questions is about um, what they found the most interesting, perhaps. But also, is there anything that they wish that they'd got the chance to learn about in the subject that they didn't? There, there's there's one example. Um, another example would be that you are teaching particular content and you've got this clearly specified core. And now there's a bit of space in the curriculum for some choices, either made by the teacher or made by the students to, to go beyond that core. But absolutely, you don't want to be coming into a class every day and just saying to the students, right, well, what do you want? What do you want to learn about today? I remember PE teachers doing that, Mike. What, what, what sport should we play today? Oh, football. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember those. Yeah, and that's where the bad rep for PE teachers comes from, Arthur. Thank you. Um, yes, it's, and I'm just reinforcing that idea. All my PE teachers were like that, Mike. Every single PE teacher I've ever met. I'm definitely not being facetious listeners. Um Bruce, a lovely conversation there about curriculum and on so many different levels. And I think, um, Mike, I know you're thinking a lot about curriculum in your life at the moment on your nice long runs. Um, I'm sure you've got lots to take away there. Um, Bruce, there's people listening to this and if they haven't heard about Bruce Robinson, I don't know what they're doing, but people want to go and find out more about you. They don't have any of your books. Where should they go? Um, please, now is the time to plug away, Bruce. Go for it. Thanks. Um, my trilogy of books is the Teaching Delusion trilogy. There is the Teaching Delusion, there is the Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back, which is the book we've referred to 27 times through the course of this podcast. And there is the Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy. I have a new book coming out on the 10th of March. With uh, It's produced in collaboration with Fanola Wilson from Impact Wales who produces sketch notes, which are just wonderful. And what we've done is we've really created um, an expanded, enhanced version of that third book, Power Up Your Pedagogy. So it's called Power Up Your Pedagogy, the Illustrated Handbook of Teaching. And we're really excited about that. I have a blog, which is theteachingdelusion.com. If you are on Twitter, then you can follow me at TTDelusion. And listen, so if you just go to the episode notes, you'll be able to click on a link and find effing you need to find out about Bruce on his second appearance on Teen Teaching. There's very few people, Mike, aren't there, who have come back again for a second pot. There's very few who are willing, so we need to thank Bruce for being willing to come back and speak to us again. Obviously, we didn't put him off the first time. We hope we didn't put him off the second time, and maybe we can make it a trilogy of appearances in the future. Surely we have to have Bruce for a trilogy. I feel like 
not having Bruce for a trilogy. I think we spoke about last time about the third book, this time a lot about the second book. So we've got to go right. back to the origin story next time, Bruce. Great. We're doing it completely like the wrong order. That's the tea and teaching way. Bruce apparently. Robinson, A New Hope. It's done. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, um, listeners will be back in a moment. So go and get another biscuit before you own. You just have to listen to me and Mike now, unfortunately. Uh, Bruce, a pleasure as always. We'll speak soon. Take care. Thank you. Welcome back to Tea and Teaching. Mike, so nice to have Bruce on again, his second appearance on Tea and Teaching. It's lovely, isn't it, to have someone come back again because you can start unpicking some of the topics that we went through in our first chat with him. And, and even now, we're thinking third appearance, we've got even more questions for him. So it is And we've been keen to have Bruce back ever since we spoke to him last time. So, Mike, I'll go to you first. Key takeaway from that, if you can find one. <laughs> I love the concept of that that macro, meso, micro, nano idea where you're looking at it in stages and getting the big picture right before you then start honing it down and looking at individual topics, individual lessons. But once you've got that big picture there, those big concepts, um, it becomes then a lot easier to then hone down of what you're teaching and when and why. So I, I really enjoyed that. What about yourself? And the structure he gave to actually have those going through those layers, I think was brilliant. I'd Absolutely. really recommend going back and listening to that bit again and then going and looking in the book. For me, it was the whole conversation about, right at the start, we talked about useful versus interesting. And I just thought that was a really nice way of framing the conversations. We've all had that conversation of what do we need to include? What should we, but I think useful and interesting is two nice ways of going back. And it wasn't discounting both or discounting either, but it was just, that's something we need to acknowledge and as part of the curriculum. Um, and I thought that was a re I hadn't heard it worded like that before. I thought that was a really nice way of putting it. So that's definitely something as a, as a maths teacher, I find a lot of it interesting and a lot of it useful, but I know some of my students may not find all parts of maths interesting. Spoiler. Uh, maths was already spoiled for me. You didn't spoil it any further. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but Bruce, thank you for coming on for second appearance. We'll have to get that trilogy uh, working back through the books as we seem to be doing. Um, so listeners, let us know your key takeaway from Matt. Um, Mike, a pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tea and Teaching. If you've enjoyed the content of this episode, please feel free to share it with other educators. And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.